Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. And the worship team, David, is uh, one of our new elder candidates along with Daniel Henderson and excited about what uh, God is doing in our church and specifically among our elders. Um, really blessed as a church to have godly men who love Jesus and uh, follow hard after him and then lead us as a church to do the same. And uh, David is one of those men. So appreciate him praying this morning. Uh, good to see you this morning. Super Bowl Sunday. I uh, got a little bit of uh, church to get over with before we go uh, watch uh, Seattle whip up on uh, the Pats later on today, and uh, everybody's in agreement. Okay, fine, fantastic. Bunch of New England fans here today. Um, I'm actually not that big of a sports enthusiast. It's kind of um, humbling. My wife knows more about what's happening in the Super Bowl and the players there uh, than I do, and I confessed that to her last night. I was just really embarrassed, and to make it even worse, somebody had mentioned that I ought to bring a football up here on stage just you know, for fun and make a pass just to get a conversation started, and I had to divulge. Again, um, I, I don't throw the ball very well. My seven-year-old actually throws a better spiral than I do. So on all accounts, I have no authority to be talking about the Super Bowl. I'm going to listen to it, so it'll be in the background playing this afternoon. Good to see you here this afternoon. Uh, we are going to be um, at the, Super Bowl, at the uh, Day Resource Center throwing a Super Bowl party for um, those who right now are homeless. That's not their identity. That just happens to be their situation. We're going to be there ministering to those, building relationships with them, uh, feeding them a meal, watching the Super Bowl with them this afternoon, and then sharing the gospel with them. So be praying for our church, uh, our missionaries who are going to be down there uh, as well this evening. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 19 to get started this morning. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we put uh, black hardback Bibles around you in the seats underneath. So feel free to grab one of those. They're there for you. If you're not sure where Psalms is, just open to the middle and you're going to be pretty close. If you hit Isaiah, just go to the left. If you hit Job, go to the right. But Psalms should be really close to the middle of the Bible. So go ahead and hit Psalm 19. Um, just a couple of more announcements to get out of the way. Uh, this Wednesday night is men's ministry. If you missed the video at the beginning of the service, so men expect to see you here. Uh, we'll be meeting here in this room. We've outgrown the other building, which is exciting news. And so we're excited to have all the men join us this Wednesday night in here uh, at 630. And so um, be sure and, and do that. Also, Philippines deposits are due today. If you're going on, on the trip, you probably know that. Just make sure you get your deposit in today. If you're not sure how or where to do that, talk to a staff member or an elder um, or a mission team uh, leader, and we'll get you directed. But our Philippines deposits are due today. And I uh, want to make sure you get those in in time. So, all right, what we're going to do today is we're continuing our series, Unity of Faith, walking through the basic tenets of Christianity, the foundational truths that we hold to and believe is absolute truth. And so today we've made it to the Bible. So we're going to be talking about the Bible today and talking about what the Bible means to us who are in Christ, our approach to it, and the way we're supposed to view it according to its own um, proclamation. So um, here, here's kind of a starting point. Um, no matter who you are, when you open the Bible, you do so with, a, with an already concluded set of assumptions or presuppositions that you open the Bible and look through as you read it. So if you're a person of faith, you open it and you look through a lens of faith, desiring to believe what you read. If you are not a person of faith and you're a little more skeptical, you open it through a lens maybe of skepticism or challenge or disbelief and you read the words through those lenses. So I'm going to give a few categories out today for you to think about. What I want to do is I want to ask you for just a minute to take some personal inventory and think about um, where you sit in terms of the Bible, what it means to you, the way you look at it, the way you read it, the way you view it. So here's some, maybe some descriptions that will help us. Um, one option would be uh, authoritative. 
So the Bible to you is authoritative. You, you see it as such. And so when you open it and you read it, your desire is to know what to do so you can obey or follow its instructions. Okay, And so you have an authoritative view of the Bible. Others among us, maybe um, yours is more suggestive. You have a Bible, the Bible is important to you, you read it from time to time, but when you open it, you're just looking for suggestions, options. God, show me some, some ideas on how you would handle this situation so then I can step back and decide, do I want to do this God's way or, or my way or what makes sense to me? And so that would be more of a suggestive approach to God's word. Maybe um, you pick and choose what you want to believe versus what you don't want to believe. Uh, another option would be uh, inspirational. So for you, the Bible is more of a, a good luck charm, and so you want to keep it close by. You've got one on the dash in your car, one on a, on a table in your family, and maybe your family living room so that people know it. And, and so you want to be inspired. So when you open it and read it, you're just hoping to be inspired for the day. You want to be invigorated or excited about your day. You want to approach the challenges of the day with optimism. And so you, you open God's word when you do for a sense of inspiration. I just want to inspire me, motivate me. Okay, it's another way you might approach the Bible or look at it. And then this last category uh, for those who may be here today who aren't believers, um, the Bible for you is more of just intriguing and possibly folklore. Just a bunch of old stories that have been passed down and twisted and changed. And, and so when you read it, at most you're just looking to be intrigued, entertained, just want to read it as literature, maybe folklore. And so that might be your perspective today. And there's a good chance we all fit into one of those categories today. And we already know what our approach is to the Bible. So what we don't want to do is force the Bible to answer questions that it wasn't intended to answer. Okay? So let's just start there. Um, the Bible was not written by its own admission to fully answer how everything works. You want to figure out how gravity works. You go to Genesis 1, you look at creation. Is there some evidence or some, some uh, sense of explanation on how the universe works? Yeah, but it's not, it's not very detailed. And so the Bible doesn't set out to explain to us um, how everything works. So the Bible's intention is to set out to, ex to describe for us who God is, to explain to us his purposes in creating the universe and, and working in our lives, the Bible sets out to tell us what God's desires and plans are for his creation. So the Bible has a motive. It has an intention. So what we want to do today, just like you and I, we, we hate to be misunderstood, don't we? We hate for people to draw quick assumptions about what we're thinking or what our motives are without truly talking to us and letting us speak first. So that's what we want to do. We want to let the Bible speak today to share with us the way it desires to be read and approached and viewed, the position that it desires to take in our lives, and then at the end of the day, we either believe it or we don't. Okay? And so that's going to be our approach today, starting in Psalm 19. And I think most of you are there. We'll go ahead and we'll get started. Psalm 19, we're going to begin in verse 7. The words of God written in the Bible are described in this passage as the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments. And so you're going to pick up quick. The psalmist is talking about the word of God in the Old Testament and describing it to us the way it wants to be seen. So we're going to start in verse 7. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord, which the Old Testament compares to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, so far, the word of God has described itself this way, as being perfect, sure, able to make wise those who are simple, like me, right, pure, clean, enduring forever, true, and righteous. That's how it describes itself. We look at, the, at verse 10, it says this also, more to be desired are they, what, is, what are the they? Those are the words of the Lord, the word of God, the Bible. More to be desired are they than gold. And not just any gold, not just pocket change, even much, a whole lot of fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So the idea is that God's word wants to be viewed this way, perfect and pure and clean and right and true. And not only that, that we would desire it and not just desire it as a good luck charm or something to add to our day, but that we would desire it more than anything this world has to offer in terms of riches, right? Not just gold, but much fine gold. It's not telling us Right, that there's something wrong with much fine gold. It's just saying that God's word should be desired more than much fine gold. Okay, but not only that, anything that life's luxuries would throw our ways. For this particular culture, it's kind of hard for us to understand, to have fresh honey dripping from the cone was a luxury. You were a person of wealth and prestige because you had your own beehives and you, your honey came straight from the cone. Didn't get to have to be processed or mixed in with a bunch of other honey and transported and be days or weeks or months old. You had the best of life's luxuries. Not in any way is God's word saying that life's luxuries are evil, but that his word would be desired more than much fine gold and desired more than life's luxuries. That's the way the Bible wants to be viewed. It wants to be treasured in our hearts. Verse 11, the same psalm says this. Moreover, by them, so by God's word, is your servant warned. So God's word is to be treasured, but it also serves to warn his servants that in keeping them, there is great reward. Now, what we don't get to do is make up the reward. So I don't get to just read God's word in the morning and say, well, I really want my reward to be such and such. And so, God, I read your Bible, so I expect a reward. The reward is up to God, but the promise is what? That when we read it and we follow it, there will be reward on God's terms. So we know that God's word desires to be treasured. It desires to be kept. And that in keeping it, it will deliver to us reward. And that's its own admission, right? If you're taking notes with us today, God intends for the Bible to be treasured. Okay? Let's stop for just a minute. Because there could be two different versions of treasured. The idea of treasured... Um, means that it has immense value combined with reverence, okay? If you just approach the Bible with reverence, but you don't truly treasure it in your heart and desire for it, then all you really have is a good luck charm that you, you have reverence for, okay? So like the Bible in your home has a lot of respect. It sits on a, on a but you never open it. So you can have reverence without a sense of desiring it. So it actually has to be both together, a sense of I treasure, I value it in such a way it's set apart for me from anybody else's word, but I I treasure it so I open it. 
and I read it, and I look for things in its pages. I don't just put it on a shelf and, and tell the kids not to touch it and dust it once a week. We open it, and we look to it for God's wisdom as a treasure. Now, we're going to move to the right in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a beautiful uh, psalm written about the value and the implications of God's word. We're just going to read a few verses. It's a really long psalm. Some beautiful, beautiful promises made there. We're going to pick it up in verse 9 of Psalm 119. Again, we want the Bible to, to instruct us how it desires to be viewed, how it desires to be read. Verse 9 begins with an intriguing question. How can a young man keep his way pure? So the implication is that for young men, it's hard to keep your way pure. And every young man in the room can relate to that. Every young woman in the room can relate to that. But the question is, how can a young man keep his way Okay, so the idea is there's a young man who's on a, on a journey, and he's asking, how can I keep my path pure and clean and right? How can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer comes back by guarding it. So guarding the path, guarding the way, guarding it according to your word. So the young man acknowledges, in order for my path to stay pure, free from evil, free from unrighteousness, free from making sin mistakes that, that, that damage my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. If my way is going to be pure, it has to be protected and guarded by something. And the something is God's word, okay? That God's word would protect our path. Continuing on, the psalmist writes, verse 10, with my whole heart, I seek you. Now, that's really important to understand we don't hold the Bible in high regard simply as, a, as an end to itself. If we hold the Bible in high regard as an end to itself, we become Bible idolaters, people who worship the Bible. Okay, that's not the point of the Bible. It's a means to something. And the end is God himself. So we're not just treasuring it to treasure it. We're treasuring it because in it, we find out who God is. And so you notice how the psalmist said that. God, your word protects my path and keeps it pure but it's you I'm seeking after. It's you I want to find when I open it. With my whole heart I seek you. So let me not wander right to a different path from your commandments. And then he goes on to say, I have stored up your word in my heart. So how do we do that? How does the young man keep his way pure? Well, he, he guards his path with God's word. Well, how does he do that? He begins by what? Storing up God's word. The idea is this, is, is this regular opening of God's word, even when life isn't difficult or hard or you don't need an answer, but you're in the process of storing up. Every time you open, you read, you seek God. He speaks to you through his word. You, at times, memorize verses of scripture. You meditate on them. You allow them to sink into who you are. That's this idea of storing up, storing up. Storing up gives us the idea of preparing for something, doesn't it? So we don't just wait until we get into a life tragedy to open his word, but when we're walking in a, in, a, in a nice time in life, when things seem to be peaceful, we're opening his word on a regular basis. We're allowing our hearts to store up what it says. I store up, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The word of God needs to be taught. We need God to teach it to us. Many of you have, have 
have set out to read the Bible in a year or just written to read the Bible in general and open it up maybe to a spot you didn't understand. You realize quickly, I need somebody to teach me. Now, God's servants can be part of that process. Mature believers can help explain things to you, but we're going to see in just a few minutes that God himself is sufficient to teach you. That as one of his children, you sit down and you open his word and ask, God, help me to read it. That he can actually guide you himself and teach you and reveal to you what his word means to say to you. So the psalmist says, I need you to teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. God's word is meant to be declared, proclaimed, spoken out loud. With my lips, I declare the rules of your mouth. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. So now we have that same expression again. I delight in your word. As much as I do in anything else on earth, I delight in it. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your what? On your ways. So as a young man, I'm asking God, how can I guard my way? And, and I realize there are a lot of different ways I could take, a lot of different paths I could take through life. And so I know that, that my path will be protected. If I store up your, your word in my heart and I live according to your word, it will, it will protect my path. But I also need to meditate on it. What do we mean meditate? I think um, a good descriptive word would be marinate. You guys are good Texans. You know what it means to marinate something, right? You soak it for a period of time. You let it saturate into the meat. And that's the idea here, that we would allow God's word to meditate or, or marinate us. So it's not just a quick, i got to read my verse for the day. Okay, there it is, and done. Check off my box, and then I go on about my day, brush my teeth, get ready for work. The idea is that I would stop and I would savor it. I would soak into it and let it soak into me. That I would meditate on the word of God and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. And then verse 105 in the same psalm is this beautiful um, expression of what God's word wants to be for us. Look at Psalm 119 verse 105. Very simply put. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God's word desires to illuminate for us the path of righteousness, that when we open it, it's not simply words on a page, but as we open it, it begins to illuminate for us a path, a direction, a way to go. Now, um, here's the thing we have to understand. Does God's word give you instruction for every realm of life? Yes. Do you find instruction for parenting in God's word? Yes. Are you going to find every scenario in your parenting in the Bible? No. It's not what it's promising. It's promising to illuminate a path of righteousness for you. Dads, as you lead your children and your family, God's word isn't going to be there to give you a recipe for Monday, do this, do this, do this, and your kids will be perfect, do this on Tuesday, do this on Wednesday. But what it is promising to be for you is a light unto your path. As you seek to lead your family through darkness, through a fallen world, that God's word will be there as you open it. It will illuminate the path in front of you, that you'll be able to trust, you'll be able to see the path of righteousness. Moms, in your specific role of nurturing your children, raising them to love Jesus with all their hearts, minds, and souls. God's word isn't going to teach you how to teach your children how to keep the room clean. Okay? You get to figure that one out on your own. 
Plenty of books have been written on that. What God's word promises you is to be a light unto your path. To engage you as you engage them. To direct your heart as your heart engages their hearts. To temper your words with gentleness and grace. To kindle and stir up love when you're at the end of your rope. To give you patience. God's word is a light unto your feet, unto your path. Guiding you down the path of righteousness. God intends for the Bible to give direction. God intends for the Bible to give direction, illuminating the path of righteousness. And that's what it says. It desires to be that for us. God is through the Bible saying, I'll show you the way. Come to me and I'll show you the way. Now what we're going to do is we're going to go to the New Testament. Okay, That's where for me it gets exciting. We're going to hear from New Testament authors who write about how the Bible was put together, how human authors were writing and God was working through them to put together this book that we call the Bible, 66 books, over 40 authors, multiple continents, still coming together in one beautifully written, um, with continuity, this beautiful narrative unfolding from cover to cover. So we're going to go to 2 Peter. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn there with us, we're going to be towards the end of the New Testament. Okay, you'll find letters from Peter and John. This is after Hebrews and James. And we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And, and Peter's a pretty cool cat. I'm glad that Peter gets a word in in the Bible. Um, Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, he's really the one who, who we can tell puts his foot in his mouth the most times. He's one of those guys who reminds me a lot of myself. Um, always seeking to be the best in the class and have the right answer. And so many times he gets it wrong and Jesus has to humble him even in front of his, in front of his boys. Um, but I appreciate that about Peter. He's not scared to go out on a limb. And, and not only do I respect that about Peter, but one of the things I admire about him is that he was one of the inner three. And uh, not everybody knows that, but Jesus had 12 disciples. One is a betrayer, Judas, who we know from the Old Testament is going to happen, right? So basically, he's got 11 faithful disciples, one betrayer. But of those 11, he's got three in an inner circle. Peter, James, and John. And on a few special occasions, Jesus does something with them that he doesn't do with the rest. Okay, And so one of those occasions is when Jesus transfigures before them. So let me explain that. A few weeks ago, we were working through the work of the Son. And we talked about the first act of the Son was to empty himself and humble himself of his glory, to come to earth and put on our skin, to walk among us, to smell like us and talk like us, to hurt like us, to to experience pain and suffering like us. And so in order for God to do that, he emptied himself of his glory. At one specific place in the journey, though, Jesus takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain, and he transfigures before them. And they're able to see him in his glory. Now, you're going to find this in three of the gospel accounts. Okay? And what's exciting about it is when you go read it, you're going to, you're going to read from a human perspective. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to hear the best attempt to describe the glory of Jesus. Okay? And so it's, it's, it, try, try to figure out what they're trying to describe. But ultimately, they're trying to say, this is what it looked like when Jesus transfigured himself before us. Well, Peter was there, okay? So he's about to talk about that transfiguration and what he saw with his own eyes. So in in 2 Peter 1, he begins with this, talking about the testimony that he has written that the other apostles have written about Jesus. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So was was there a sense of skepticism in the first century church about Jesus? Yeah. One of the possible skepticisms was that the disciples got together 
and they schemed before Jesus went to the cross. And they, and they came up with some, some stories and some myths that they were going to then take forward and present as truth. And so he, Peter just wants to be real honest with you. I know that, that that's probably lingering in somebody's minds. And so he says, we did not follow, so that's not what we're following here, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So right now from Peter's admission, he wants you to know, listen guys, what I'm presenting to you and what the rest of the apostles are presenting to you is the best we can what we saw with our own eyes. That's our intention here. Okay, so we, we now get some insight into what these authors are thinking as they're writing. Peter's saying, we want to tell you the best we could exactly what we saw. Now think about that. Perfect word of God or myths? And here's what I want to say to you. I don't think there's room for the in-between. I really don't. I, I, I run into people sometimes who want to pick and choose from God's word. I want to believe this, and I want to hold firmly to this. But I'm not too sure about this. Well, here's the problem with that. The things that we most frequently latch onto are the promises of God's grace, his love, and his mercy. And so in those things, we claim to have eternal life. We are staking our lives on those promises to be true. Why would we stake our lives on a half-true book? I'm out on that. I'm out. I have no desire to pay $1,850 to get on three airplanes and a motorcycle, to go to a village in the Philippines, to tell people about the words in this Bible. If I don't believe they're all true, I'm out. My family, I'm leading my wife and my boys to follow God's instruction here. If it's not fully true, trust me, I'm out. I don't want my boys getting down the road one day and saying, oh, part of it's true and part of it's not. For me, it's, it's all or nothing. There's no room for in-between. Because I'm going to have an eternal conflict, right? Because by its own admission, it says that it's all to be treasured, all to be trusted, all to be believed and obeyed. And so what Peter is saying from the forefront, he's saying, this is either myth or it's God's word perfect. Now he's going to go on to give us some more insight in verse 17. For when he, talking about Jesus, this is still 2 Peter 1, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. He's now beginning to remember the transfiguration. This is what Peter has on his mind. Look at what he says. This is my son. So Peter's saying, when we were there, we heard this voice come out of this majestic glory. I don't know how to explain it any other way. We were up on a mountain. Jesus was there. James and John were there. It blew our minds. It was majestic glory, and we heard a voice. Here's what the voice said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the second time that we know of that that happened. It happened at Jesus' baptism. He was baptized. And the father said, that's my son. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. And it happened at the transfiguration when Jesus transformed himself for just a moment into his glory before returning back to his humanity to walk to the cross. And Peter said, I was there. And I heard the words with my own ears say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Go read uh, Matthew 17, Mark 9, or Luke 9, all record what he's talking about. 
And Peter's saying, listen, it either happened or it didn't. And I'm telling you right now, I was there and I heard it. So when we get into this, into these questions about what did the biblical authors intend when they wrote? What was their goal? What was their intention? Peter's telling you, I want to tell you what I saw and I want to describe for you what I heard. We go to the gospel of John. John was one of the inner three. In his gospel at the end, in chapter 20 and 21, the very end of his gospel, after he's told the account of Jesus, he says something to us. So in John 20, in verse 30 and 31, he says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. There's a whole lot more he did in front of us, which are not written about in this book. So John tells us, I didn't write everything down for you. But then he goes on to say, in 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is telling us. As a matter of fact, in chapter, um, the next chapter, in verses 24 and 25, he's going to say, if you tried to write down everything that Jesus did and taught, there aren't enough books in the world to contain it. But here's what you need to know. I am writing this simply that you might believe what I believe. I was there, I saw it, and I believe he is the Son of God. And, I, and I'm writing it so that you might believe, and that by believing, you might have life. That's his intention. Just laid it out for us. Right? He's not sneaking up on us. He's not trying to, trying to pull the, the Jesus juke on us or, or be the, the, the ninja disciple and, and, and trick us into believing in Jesus. He's just telling us straightforward. I wrote it as plainly and as clearly as I can. This is why I wrote it to you. It's for you to believe or not believe. And I was there. Now think about this. Okay. The Bible doesn't have to prove itself to us. Okay? There is a fantastic study of the Bible um, that falls under the category of literary criticism. Um, when you walk through the canonization of the Bible, how we get our modern-day translations, all of that is a, is a noteworthy study. But if you're waiting on that to answer all your questions before you believe it, you're never going to get there because at the end of the day, the Bible says you either believe or you don't. Okay? A lot of, um, a, a lot of trust can be gained by studying the history of the Bible. Matter of fact, we have a Bible study class going on right now in this service um, called How to Read the Bible, and it's open to you. We've got four more weeks left. If you want to jump in next Sunday, if you want to come to the 9 a.m. and then go to that class, you can. They're going to walk you through how we got our modern-day translations and the, the canonization and the completeness of the books of the Bible, how all the process that was gone through to, to, to settle all that so you can know. Now, that can't be, though, at the end of the day, the reason you do or don't believe the Bible. Highly credible document. More trustworthy and faithful statistically speaking, than any other historical document we have when you study it from a literary criticism perspective. But at the end of the day, it's a book to be believed or not. And John and Peter are saying, I'm writing this to you that you would either believe it or that you wouldn't. But that if you believe, you would have life. Now, one of the things, though, that builds in me an additional sense of confidence after I believe, one, the Bible is not void of embarrassing stories. I love this about the Bible. Like if I were trying to come up with clever myths to fool you, I'm going to leave some of these stories out. I mean, prostitutes in the lineage of Jesus, I'm just going to leave out their profession, right? It's an awesome woman of God. Just, yeah, she's in the lineage of Jesus. No, she's, she's a prostitute. Uh, how about Noah? Fantastic story about Noah. You realize that after the flood, waters recede and they land and they begin to establish, his boys find him passed out drunk in a tent naked. I'm just going to leave that out, right? How about Paul, your primary author of the New Testament, writing things to us like 
I'm out of my mind as I write this. How about Paul writing, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know which one I want right now. How about Paul writing to us saying, all the things I know I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing right now. And all the things I'm not supposed to be doing, I keep finding myself doing them. I mean, what vulnerability and honesty we find in the Bible. Right? Furthering my confidence that it is true and right. I've got two more things I would share with you, though. Of the 11 faithful disciples discrediting Judas, all but one give their lives for the things written in it. Now, if anybody knew, right, the truth of the matter, these guys did. They walked with Jesus. If anybody knew that he was a phony or a fraud or less than the son of God, the men who slept with him and ate with him and dined with him and, right, and journeyed with him and learned from him, these are going to be, after three years, day in, day out, right, they're going to know. And yet all but John gave their lives for what they wrote about him. So like, I might, I might lie to you, but whenever you, whenever you go to nail my hands to a cross and turn it upside down and set it on fire, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna come up forward, right? I'm gonna say, okay, I was just joking, just kidding. I made it all up. But they don't. They all go to their death based on what they say they believe that they saw and they heard and what they believe to be true. Even John they took him and tried to kill him by throwing him in a vat of boiling oil and tried to get him to recant. He ended up living, so then they exiled him to an island called Patmos where God gives him the revelation, which is the last, last book in your Bible. These guys, I mean, right? They didn't just have their reputations at stake. It wasn't just their careers that were in jeopardy. They gave their lives to say to us today, I believe, I believe these things to be true. Now, that alone doesn't convince me, but I need to know that. Let me take it a step further. You know that Jesus had a brother in the game, James? Matter of fact, our Bible study class down the hallway is studying the book of James over the next few weeks. So if you jump in, you'll be studying the writings of Jesus' little brother. If anybody knew he was a fraud and a phony, little brother knew it. Come on, right? You got kids. I've got two boys. I mean, they can't even agree on which movie to watch. And yet Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. His disciples are getting his back, riding on his behalf, and then giving their lives. James gave his life based on his testimony that he believed Jesus was ultimately the son of the living God. If anybody knew that, whether that was true or not, right? James is little brother. Matter of fact, here's something that James says in the book of James, just an excerpt. He says, hold the faith. Hold fast. Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What brother talks about his brother that way? Hold fast our Lord Jesus Christ. Not hold fast to what my brother taught you. Hold fast the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so now while it is ultimately a promise to be believed, tons of reasons why I continue to believe it, right? Tons of reasons why I'm an all or nothing guy. I'm all in. James was all in. I'm all in. John and Peter were all in, I'm all in. Paul was all in, I'm all in. King David, a man after God's own heart, a valiant warrior. Oh yeah, and he had an affair with Bathsheba and got her pregnant and killed her husband to cover it up. I'm leaving that part out, right? But no, the the word of God, the authors are writing with an intention to tell us what is true. Now we're gonna talk about God's role in that, okay? So we, we established their motive, Let's look at God's motive. Continuing in 2 Peter, verse 19. Peter says this, 
And we have the prophetic word. Not just words, not just stories. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, right? It was, the thing about this, I mean, they wrote these things, these letters circulated, and their peers read them. They have this word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Does that sound familiar? Peter's saying that about even the writings in the New Testament, that they would be like a lamp shining as in a dark place. He goes on to say, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What do you mean, Peter? You just told us that you have an intention to tell us something. Look at what he says in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to bring up something here. So um, let's go back to the Old Testament for a second. I'm going to explain something that happens. How man can have an intention in something. He intends to do something or say something. But how God can superintend his motives over the top of it. I'll give you an example. I'm not even talking about the Bible necessarily or the words of the Bible. Just going back to the story of Joseph. This is Genesis 50. If you know the story of Joseph, I mean, little brother, there was a jealousy issue among his siblings. And ultimately, they didn't like him being dad's favorite. So they sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him first. And they decided, no, we don't want his blood on our hands. Let's just sell him to slavery. We'll make a few bucks, and let's just roll on and pretend like an an animal killed him. So they do this. They carry out this plan. It's in the Bible. And what happens is uh, he gets sold into slavery, but through a process of serving in the Lord's favor, Joseph rises to the top in Pharaoh's courts. And ultimately, during a famine, his brothers, at a later date, don't realize he's still alive. They come to him, and they have to beg for food, basically, for the family. And after they realize that it's Joseph, their brother, they go back to their dad and talk, and then they, they, they have a heart of repentance. So they come back to Joseph, and they repent. They say, brother, we're wrong. We shouldn't have done that to you. It was a bad idea, you think, right? I mean, this is the point where little brother gets to drop some elbows, right, just for fun. Joseph's response blows me away. Here's what he says. Little, he says to his brothers, what you guys intended for evil. So he's acknowledging you had evil intentions. You carried out a plan and your intentions were evil. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see what he's talking about? It's what we call super intention. That even though there is an intention in man's will, this is a story where man intends evil. But Joseph is saying, you know how cool God is? He can actually take our intentions for evil and he can turn them around, superintend them for good. Now that's in a situation where evil gets turned around for good. What Peter and John are saying, we don't have evil intentions. Our intentions are pure. We just want to tell you who Jesus is. And so now what we just heard from Peter in 2 Peter 1 is this. As the authors are writing with their own intentions, John told us what his intentions were. The Holy Spirit of God was there superintending every word. Carrying him along is a literal translation from word to word. Was he a mindless uh, you know, man there with no thoughts in his mind? No, he had thoughts in his mind. Did he sit down with intention? He absolutely did. But as he sat down with intention, the Holy Spirit of God in him superintended the words. Now, that's what the Bible claims to be true about itself. Peter isn't the only one who says this. Um, In 2 Timothy 3, 
The apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy. And so in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, Paul says this to Timothy. This is in verse 14. If you're, uh, if you're taking notes with us, let's just go ahead and fill in the blanks. The, word, the words of the Bible are inspired and superintended. It's a big word, but hopefully we know what it means. There's an intention of man, and God's intentions are superior. They lay over it, right? So his intentions are ultimately what happens. The words of the Bible are inspired and superintended by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is composed of God's words written without error by human authors. God's words written without error by human authors. Now, 2 Timothy 3, look at what Paul says. Talking to Timothy, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Talking about the scriptures. Which are able to make you wise, they're able to do something for you, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Some of your translations will say inspired, which is actually interpreting the word here. The words put together here in the Greek language literally mean breathed out. Like God inhaled and exhaled the words of the scriptures. So Paul is really saying the same thing that Peter said. God superintended with his Holy Spirit the words of the Bible. And Paul's reminding Timothy that these are words that will make you wise for salvation. And all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good work. I'm going to look at two more, um, two more sets of verses with you this morning. So what Paul just said to Timothy is the same thing Peter said. It's breathed out by God, superintended by God. But not only that, it's profitable for all these different categories of life. Here again, can I just be honest with you? If it's not the inerrant word of God, I'm out. I'm just rebellious enough. I don't like authority. I don't. By nature, I tend to like to govern myself and make up my own rules and decide what's best for me. Anybody else have that problem? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't play out well for us in the end, but we're, by nature, we're that way. I don't want anybody telling me what to do that I can't trust. And so for me, if I'm going to obey one word of God's word, I'm obeying it all or nothing. Or I, I'm going to strive for that anyway, okay? My desire is for that. All or nothing. I'm not, I'm not in for an authority that's right half of the time. I'm just not. I've never been okay with that. And so for me, again, it's, it's all or nothing. Now, we're going to bring up another couple of words here, and then we'll explain them. The word sufficient and infallible. By sufficient, we mean enough. Paul just told Timothy, the word of God is enough for salvation. It's enough. You don't need the Bible plus. You don't need the Bible plus a preacher, a Bible plus a priest, a Bible plus even a church, a Bible plus baptism, a Bible plus anything else. The Bible alone is sufficient to lead you to salvation. Now, can those things be helpful in the spiritual journey? Absolutely. Somebody helping disciple you, explain to you how to read God's word, teaching you how to do that. But at the end of the day, the word of God is sufficient to lead you to salvation. Of a, one of our church members here, a dear lady, I won't call her by name, um, but uh, became a believer when she lived out in the West Coast in California. And she shares her testimony about how she had a friend witnessing to her and she was atheist. And she really, really didn't like Christians that got on her nerves. 
And just through a series of, reading, of events, reading the Bible, um, she was in the Psalms. At least she was in Psalm 51, David's Prayer of Repentance. God's word illuminated the path to salvation. She became a believer. She was in obstinate disagreement with the church and didn't like Christians, opened his word, and it led her to salvation. And we believe that's true. It's sufficient enough. If we go to Hebrews 4, it's a fairly popular verse, scripture, you may have heard it. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this about the Bible, the words of the Bible. This is Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, not just words on a page. Something about it is alive. It's living and it's also active. It's doing something. I love to say God's word never does nothing. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So now we get this kind of metaphoric illustration of God's word. It's, it's got the ability to cut or to, to pierce. And so look at what the author says. Piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing else can do that but God. Did you know that we don't even discern our own intentions very well? We lie to ourselves all the time. My intentions are good. No, they're not. But we need the word of God. And here's what I like to say. I need to read it, but I need to let it read me. Because as James says in his writing, as we read the word God, it operates like a mirror, and it shows me the truth. Right? Where I think that I look pretty good on the outside, I read the Bible, and the Bible shows me otherwise, and I'm able to go, ooh, wow. That's what I sound like. That's what my attitude looks like. And, I'm, and as I read it, it reads me. And so what the author of Hebrews just said, that's because it penetrates the depths of who we are, and it reveals motives and intentions and shows who we are and the depths of who we are. I want to end in Isaiah 55, going back to the Old Testament. And so Peter and Paul have said that the Holy Spirit of God worked for human authors to write down his words. We go back to Isaiah 55. The prophet Isaiah is writing, and he is claiming to write down the words of God. Okay? So what he's writing, he's saying God is saying this, and he writes it down in his, in his, in his book. So in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8, he's quoting God. So if you're reading in your Bible, it should be in quotes. Here's what Isaiah records that God says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Okay? So the way I think about things and the way I see the world, if I believe the Bible means that the way God thinks about things and the way he sees the world is going to be different. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Then he goes on to say, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So this idea that I'm on a path through life, and if you leave me up to my own ambition, I'm going to take my own way. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My way is not your way. So if my, light, my word is going to be a lamp unto your feet, it's going to guide you away from your way and show you my way. It's going to redirect you. He goes on to say, verse 9, for as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so if you can try to fathom heaven and earth, the distance between the two, okay, for as high as the heavens are, Above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. So it's not like we're just kind of on different pages. God's saying they're altogether different. The way you think about things is altogether different from the way I think about things. The way you see the world is altogether different from the way I see the world. The way that you want to go through life is altogether different from the way that I would guide you through life. 
verse 10, he uses the metaphor of farming. And so um, he's going to use rain and snow, how rain and snow comes down onto the earth. And so the farmer plants seeds and covers it up with dirt, but the farmer can't make it come to life and grow. So the farmer goes home. And so in the same way that rain falls to the earth or snow, and it, and it gives life to the seed and bursts forth in life, God says, that's the same way my word works. Look at what he says. Verse 10, for as the rain and snow comes down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth. He's not making a case against evaporation, if that's what you're thinking. He's saying, because we know it evaporates, it goes back. He's saying, the point is this, the, the rain goes forward from the cloud and it lands on the earth, not to just bounce back up. It, it, has a, it has an intention to do something. It's for a purpose. So the rain comes down to the earth with a purpose. Here's what he says. Making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So in the same way that works, you're sitting at home and you're eating bread. And you think about it. I'm eating this bread because rain came down to the earth and watered a seed. It came to life, produced a plant, got harvested, processed, and now I'm eating it. Okay? In the same way, God says, look at this in verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void. God is saying, my word never does nothing. In the same way that water falls on the ground and brings life forth, so does my word. Look at the end of verse 11. But it shall, be, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. One of the beautiful things about the Bible, if you will study it well and read it, is you're going to notice something. There's a beautiful story arc unfolding from beginning to end. And so if you start at Genesis, we start with the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then quickly after that, we get the fall. And so man is living under the shadow and the curse of the fall until Christ comes, right? Christ comes to redeem us and save us from the curse of the fall. And then the church launches, and we're awaiting for his return. Guess where your Bible ends? With the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And when you're able to read it that way, it's one unfolding narrative told through 66 different books and multiple authors, different continents. You realize this is one story unfolding here. And it's a story of human history, not just what has happened, but what is going to happen. And, and I love how the Bible says to us, here is what is going to happen. The end of the story isn't contingent on things unfolding the right way. God never says, oh, by the way, church, if things go well, I'm coming back. Right? He never comes to us and says, you know, as long as things go according to plan, don't de get derailed. Here's what you can expect. If things get derailed, plan B. What does God say? This is what's going to happen. You can bank on it. It's all or nothing. God is saying, this is what has happened, and here's what's going to happen. One beautiful unfolding narrative of redemption. And so therefore, we say that the word of God, because it goes forward like rain to the ground, and it, it never does nothing, it always accomplishes the purposes that God sets forth for it to accomplish, it is infallible, meaning it never fails. It is infallible. The Bible is sufficient and infallible. It is the sufficient and infallible revelation of God's will for redemption. Let me read for you um, an excerpt from our statement of faith about the Bible, and then, um, and then I'm going to 
challenge you then to think about where you land on this topic, okay? So here's what we say in our statement of faith as a church. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, inspired and superintended by God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. What do we mean by that? We've got a lot of modern-day translations, okay? A lot of them. We're saying that the original writings and manuscripts are without error, okay? And so if you want to learn more about translations and how all that works, again, the Bible study class, we're going to walk through that and teach you about the different translations, how they were translated, um, whether or not you can trust them. But for us, what we're saying in faith is we believe that in the original writings of these authors, they were without error. It is the complete and infallible revelation of God's will for redemption and sufficient as the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, and this is a statement I want us to to see here, therefore it is to be believed in all it teaches, trusted in all that it promises, and obeyed in all that it requires. I mean, let's just be honest. You're not going to obey anything you don't trust. So we can't just start with arbitrary obedience. And here's the thing, too. You're not going to trust anything you don't believe. So really, this is not a question of how, how, how well you are at obeying authority. This is a question of what you truly believe. If you believe it, you're going to trust it. And as it begins to illuminate a path in front of you, even if it looks different from your path, you're going to trust it, and therefore you're going to begin to obey it, follow its instructions, keep its commands. But it begins first with believing. The Bible is to be believed in all that it promises. Excuse me, believed in all that it teaches, trusted in all that it promises, and obeyed in all that it requires. So at Solid Rock Church, we affirm and teach from all modern translations. We're not going to get in the old King Jimmy debate about King James or not King James. This is what we believe is true. At Solid Rock Church, we affirm and teach from all modern translations that strive to be faithful to the original writings. And we can take that conversation deeper if you want to go. But that's our conviction. That's where we land. We believe it. We trust it. Therefore, we strive to obey it. I don't know where you land in that. Is the Bible authoritative to you? Something that you can trust and obey? Is the Bible more suggestive? I just kind of like to pick and choose maybe and I'm working through it all or I'm waiting till I can trust it all before I believe any of it. And where, I don't know where you are on that. Maybe you just are in that category of inspiration. You just like to be inspired. Or maybe you're here today and, and, and you came in today skeptical not really having any bearings at all, not even knowing where you fall on whether or not you believe it or not. Here's what I want to say at the end of the day. You either believe it or you don't, and that's for you to do. John said that I'm writing this so that you would believe it, and that by believing it, you would have life in Christ. Remember, the Bible is not the end, it's the means to the end. And what these biblical authors want you to know, more importantly, what they want you to have, is a relationship with Jesus. And so if you're here today, and you still don't know how the Bible was put together, you don't have all your questions answered, that's okay. If you want life in Jesus, you can have it today by simply believing in him that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life, that by believing in him, you're saved. That one of the things the Bible promises is all who call on his name are saved. And so all you need to do today is call on his name. I'm gonna pray for us today, and uh, we're gonna take communion in just a moment. Um, But before we do that, so... Um, Jason, if you wouldn't mind just coming up and playing behind us for a few moments. Um, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be at the back of the room today. So if you want to pray with somebody, they'll be at the back. They'll have prayer lanyards on, prayer partner lanyards. Love to pray with you. Um, but let's, let's stop for just a moment and just pray together.
and let's respond to what we've heard. So Father, we are thankful this morning that you've given us a word we can trust. We thank you, God, that the words of the Bible are not just arbitrary rules to be obeyed, but there's there's something about the, the words of the Bible that are to be treasured and desired. And we see today clearly that you, God, have ultimately authored the Bible with a clear intention to lead us to life. And so today I want to pray for any person here who doesn't have that life that the Bible promises, that today would be the day of faith. So God, would you speak to us now, each of us individually? Lead us into a time of reflection. Speak to us. Guide us and direct us, we pray.